News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, pandemic or not, the National Remembrance Day ceremony will proceed this morning in Ottawa. A little different, though. They do not want people to attend. In fact, there's quite a bit of security there, heavy police presence to make sure that people don't gather. Now, you can see that live, all of it, the ceremony and everything on Global News, of course. And our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, will be part of that coverage team. He joins us now from Ottawa this morning. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're literally, our office, our bureau here in Ottawa is, looks right down on the war memorial. And yeah, you're, you're quite right. Um, army police, they don't want people here. And that's not for, sec- it's the only security they're there for, not for a threat from any bad guys. It's don't come to this ceremony. And it's not just the one here in Ottawa. It's, it could be the, the ceremony in Vancouver. Uh, it could be the one in Surrey. Doesn't matter where it is. The Royal Canadian Legion has told everybody or is telling people, do not come to a Remembrance Day ceremony this year. It's, it's obviously it's because of COVID. And on the flip side, the Legion is also saying they still felt it was important to have an in-person ceremony. And I tend to agree with them, but they're doing it in a COVID-safe way. Uh, normally here in Ottawa for the national ceremony, I mean, you, last year 35,000 people uh, would show up. But this year, nothing. No marching bands, no veterans parades. Mm-hmm. They don't want anybody. It'll be a maximum of 100 people uh, on on the site. And one other weird thing, too, I got to tell you, is the weather here in Ottawa. I've been doing this for, as I say, you know, 15 some odd years. It's 18 degrees today, and I'm actually what? sweating. Normally on, yeah, normally on Remembrance Days to cover it outside, I've got the long johns on, the woolens. We had a foot of snow this time last year, but it's it feels like Vancouver, Simi. I don't know how you guys put up with this. It's 18 <laughs> degrees here in Ottawa right now. I was just thinking that. That sounds like more like our temperatures. Okay, so for those yeah. who are going to watch this online, and we hope, David, that everybody does, can you walk us through what's going to be happening? Sure. So the ceremony will look, at, at as it begins, sort of very similar. There's a VIP delegation led by the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, and that's our Governor General, Julie Payette, of course. Uh, the Prime Minister and his wife will be there, the Veterans Affairs Ministers. There will be some representative veterans, of course, that's very important, but you won't see, as I say, normally there'd be hundreds, thousands of veterans would attend, not this year. Um, there will be some music. Music's a very important part of the ceremony, but there was a debate about how to do that, because we know public health officials uh, have said, you know, to choirs and churches, please, no singing, it. that's how COVID gets passed around. Around. Um, but as it turns out, the, the band and the choir for the Canadian Armed Forces, they have been in a bubble like many other Canadian Armed Forces units. So whether you're, say, a, a ship, uh, you know, crew in a ship or you're a tank crew, you've been living with your other uh, mates uh, in a bubble. And same thing with the Army band. They've been bubbling. So they will be uh, performing. And as I say, it's an important part of the service. Um, we've seen CF-18s fly over every year, and they're going to do that again this year. They come from the nearest fighter jet base is, is in Quebec, CFB mm-hmm. Baggettville. It's 500k away. Uh, normally they'd fly here, stay overnight, and then fly back. But again, to prevent any CFB or any COVID uh, transmission, the jets will fly here right. and then turn right around and fly 500k back. But they'll need the fuel, so a 
a refueling jet has come all the way from Winnipeg and will be hovering above the skies, wow. ready to gas the jets up. So again, all these COVID precautions right from top to bottom. And we can't, of course, go today, David, without hearing about this year's Silver Cross Mother, that every year that honour is uh, bestowed to represent a parent who has lost a child while in service. And this year's Silver Cross Mother is Debbie Sullivan of New Brunswick. And what do we know about her? That's right. And so Debbie is the, the mom of the late left uh, Navy lieutenant. Uh, Chris Saunders. And Chris Saunders was, was a combat systems engineer on board the HMCS Shakutami, a submarine. And uh, many will remember that 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 submarine was making one of its first voyages uh, traveling from Canada to Scotland. And just off the coast of Scotland, there was a fire on board, and right. it was in that fire that uh, Lieutenant Saunders perished. So she's here. She's very honored. She was made recently an, uh, an honorary submariner, and I know that, that touched her deeply. Um, one more COVID precaution, Simi. Normally, the Silver Cross Mother has a dinner with the Governor General. Mm-hmm. This time around, it will be just a tea with the Governor right. General. So uh, COVID is affecting things everywhere. But one last thing, Simi, I want to pass on. I yep. thought Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole had a good idea. Um, again, he's encouraging people to stay away. But he says, try hashtag doorstop remembrance. So if you're at home, maybe come out to the front door. Yes. And you and your neighbors, if you're on the street, take a moment to reflect because it's the act of remembering that is the most important thing, not where you are, but doing it. That's the key. All right. Thank you, David. So important to remember that. Thanks so much. Okay. Cheers. David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. And yes, those ceremonies in Ottawa, you can watch and follow along with, of course, this morning, along with ours here, uh, which will be on Global. You will hear all about it. We know that mental health issues have really been in the forefront during this pandemic. It is tough for people out there. It's tough for that isolation and and just kind of feeling like you can't do anything uh, during all of this. And now there's new research from UBC that indicates that while many people are, of course, struggling with stress and other mental health issues related to the pandemic, few of them are actually seeking out any kind of online resources for help. So that's why our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Chris Richardson, a research associate at the UBC School of Population and Public Health and scientist at the Center for Health Evaluation and Outcome Sciences at St. Paul's Hospital. For all of these people who were in the survey, what kind of mental health impacts were highlighted? What kind of mental health issues like increased stress, anxiety, did you find that people have been experiencing more of? Yeah, so um, the goal of the survey is done in the last two weeks of May. So the goal is just to look at sort of the initial impacts of the survey. We, we just wanted to see is how, how are people sort of responding emotionally to the survey? Are they feeling better or worse? Do they feel like they're able to cope? Uh, what are their sources of support? Like what's working? Um, what, what things are really stressing them out? And so it's, it's not so much a clinical diagnosis, but looking at the sort of initial emotional responses and, and coping to the COVID pandemic. And most of our questions specifically ask about the impact of the COVID pandemic on these things. And I would, you know, our numbers, we came in about 38% said um, their mental health had worsened as a result of COVID. Um, anxiety, like feeling anxious or worried was experienced by 46% of the sample. were bored, 37% were stressed, Um, sadness and feelings of depression were up around 23 to 27%. And, you know, really one of the things that was quite concerning that we did see is that um, rates, or I'm just scrolling down here, um, rates of experiencing suicidal thoughts and feelings overall were 6%, but were much higher in sort of vulnerable subgroups. And that, that was true also with the other 
other experiences we mentioned. So people of lower income, people from visible minority, um, people with uh, disability or pre-existing mental health condition tend to have much higher rates. And that was one of the goals of the survey is to see if the pandemic is really having a much, uh, what we call a differential impact or a much more intense impact on vulnerable groups. And we see some people say the pandemic highlights inequalities or inequities in populations that were already pre-existing. It sort of magnifies sort of the gaps in services that a lot of a lot of subgroups or more vulnerable groups in our population experience already. And then under COVID, they just just blow up and become uh, they can become really problematic for a lot of our most vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. And for so many of these individuals, in the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed as though the resources that were previously available to them no longer were available. For example, you know, going in person to see your doctor or going in person to see your psychologist, your therapist, but online resources then became available to people. Did you find that people were taking advantage of those online resources? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, there was that shift as in-person resources were shifted down unless it was an emergency. And we didn't find much use of online resources. They've been ramping up in terms of becoming available. So anyone who's interested, I would definitely recommend people check out the Canadian Mental Health Association and they have programs called Bounce Back and other related materials online. Uh, Just Google it and you'll find it. And so a lot of resources are being developed, but we found only on average 2% of people had accessed online resources that didn't directly involve sort of chatting online with someone in person, but sort of online programs, online videos, and things like that. So only 2%. And it, it went up to, to slightly higher, but not much more than 10% in, in some groups that were experiencing a lot of problems. So you could say even among groups that would really benefit who were experiencing, say, suicidal thoughts or high levels of feeling anxiety and things like that, even those groups were not using it, were, you know, feelings of depression and anxiety, those people, only around 4% had access to online resources. So there's this huge opportunity for people to get some really practical, useful tools that could help them cope and also put them in touch with uh, more more uh, in-person or, or higher intensity uh, services as needed if they needed them. So good coping skills. And if those didn't work, you could also see these resources as a gateway to sort of uh, more intense services that might be needed. Now, you mentioned this group earlier, but I think it's important to circle back to them again, because perhaps the most concerning group in this study are people who said that they were experiencing suicidal thoughts, they're self-harming, they self-report coping not very well at all with the pandemic and pandemic-related stresses. Are these very vulnerable individuals, are these people seeking out resources? Yeah, that's that's what we found, and that's we're just doing some more research on this. Um, but you say overall people are experiencing suicidal thoughts and feelings. Only six percent reported accessing online resources, but that goes up to fourteen percent of people um, who had an income, a household income less than twenty five thousand. Sixteen percent among Indigenous uh, community members um, and LGBTQ plus um, again up to fourteen percent. So you see those inequities really being magnified in our vulnerable groups. And and you can see some of these groups, maybe a lot of their supports might have come through social social groups or through, let's say, um, religious services or things like that that have been shut down during the pandemic. And again, there's a huge opportunity for them to connect with some 
some really good self-help tools that could also be gateway to more intense services online. And I think our preliminary research suggests that it's really a lack of awareness. The tools are there, they're evidence-based, they're free of charge, they're available in multiple languages, but they're just um, not being accessed at this time, or at least not as much as they could be, that's for sure. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. You know, why is it that people aren't accessing these resources like they could be? Does it simply come down to that lack of knowledge that these resources even exist? Yeah, that's that's what we did. You know, was a, this was a, the first uh, survey in this in this project, and we've just finished collecting data in October on the second wave. And as part of the second wave, we we kind of dove a little deeper into this and asked questions about reasons for not using. And definitely, a lack of awareness seems to be by far the most most common reason for not accessing these resources. They just don't know what. One thing that really supported that is in our findings when we looked at people. Um, who already were in touch with a healthcare provider. So maybe they had a case manager or a support worker that they were routinely in touch with prior to the pandemic. Those people were accessing at, I think it was about 10%, so at rates much higher, and which suggests to us, and then talking to my uh, clinical colleagues, just, oh, well, a lot of people are already working with the worker. Those workers will refer them to these online resources because they know about them and point them out as supports for people. But for other people who don't have that, that close connection to the uh, health or social system, they don't have those referrals to these online resources being made. So there's a huge opportunity sort of to connect people with these online resources because they're really well made. They're easy to use. Um, they help build resilience. They build tools that are very transferable that will last long after the pandemic that will help people cope with emotional challenges that they encounter in their life. Well, Chris, thank you so much for chatting with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Great info. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. I just I would really encourage everyone if you're feeling stressed, anxious or having every, any sort of suicidal thoughts or really negative or low mood, check out uh, Canadian Mental Health Association online and you'll see lots of resources there in multiple languages and free of charge. Well, no doubt it is chilly out there and those days are getting shorter and shorter. And meanwhile, our COVID-19 case numbers are continuing to go up. So it is important with everything that we're being asked to do to continue to focus on mental health concerns as well. As part of that, the Canadian Red Cross has actually come up with something. It's a free pandemic parenting resource. They call it the Family Care Kit. It's got games, activities, discussion prompts, all that kind of stuff to help parents connect with their kids during these stressful times. So we thought, let's talk about this. Gina Sharma joins us now, the learning and social development expert and founder of The Conversation. Gina, thank you very much for being here. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on your show. What is The Conversation? Conversation is a disruption to conversation. We're taking the con out of communication and inserting calm so that we can have the exchange of peaceful, thoughtful ideas. Okay. And do you think we need more of that in this environment right now? Yes. We have a range of emotions that uh, our humans, the littlest ones, to parents, teachers, are experiencing and inserting some conversation is really critical at this time. So how beneficial do you think using this Canadian Red Cross Family Care Kit could be? Are families, do you think, having trouble getting those conversations going? Yeah, we actually spoke to parents. We ran some focus groups and did surveys, and we discovered that parents are struggling. They're feeling the pressure to keep their children entertained or occupied, 
developing normal routines. And so in listening to their struggles and challenges, we put together resources to support them. And what kind of resources? How does this work? Okay, so the family care kit is based off of five themes. And that's the basis of conversation. So theme one is ideas and inspiration, helping kids develop confidence in sharing their ideas and what inspires them, Uh, communication, helping children learn how to communicate effectively with each other, Uh, emotions, helping children develop understanding around emotions, learning, making learning transparent, and ultimately problem solving, helping children become creative problem solvers. So within each one of those five themes are activities to support this theme. Nice. Okay. I think part of the problem, Jenna, don't you think during all of this is that parents have been stressed too, and it's not easy for kids to also see their mom and dad stressed. So such a good point, Cindy. Parents are experiencing a lot of stress and trying to figure out what is the best thing to do for their child. Each family will be different and What I recommend for parents is to lead with authenticity. Let the child know, you know, I'm struggling to figure out what the right thing to do is now. And that way, involving the child in coming up with solutions. Right. So even though it feels like I think people felt, "Mm, maybe I don't need to worry about this anymore, but here we are back again. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we do need to worry about this, don't we? Yeah, it's not going away anytime soon. COVID is around and it is a curveball. How do we get this kit? So you go over to conversation.org, so that's conversation.org, and there's a page for families, and it's a very easy download, and the parents can use the kit online, they can print it off, use it at home. All right, sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Have a good day. That's Gina Sharma, uh, the learning and social development expert and founder of The Conversation. Go to conversation.org, and that's com, C-A-L-M conversation.org to download this family care kit that you can use yourself, your kids. Uh, and, you know, there's games in there and activities and discussion prompts. And you could see if it helped people just relieve a little bit of the stress that they may be feeling with everything that's going on. You know, we probably should have been doing it all along. Actually, we definitely should have. But it is good to know that in recent years, we have started to recognize the diversity of the men and women who have been a part of the Canadian military and its history. So, of course, today being Remembrance Day, we wanted to talk about a ceremony that is recognizing the contributions made by Japanese Canadians. Uh, David Iwasa will emcee the ceremony that's happening in Stanley Park today. We wanted to hear more about it. His son, Ken is joining us now to talk more about it. Winnipeg doctor and a grandson of a Japanese World War II veteran. Ken, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning. Good to be here. Now, did, when you were growing up, did you hear stories about your um, grandfather's experiences in World War II? Yes, yes, I have. And um, I definitely enjoyed hearing about it very much. What kinds of stories? What did he talk about? He talked about... Um, when he actually landed um, with the Canadian Armed Forces on the beaches of Normandy, he talked about how um, he could hear and almost feel the, the floods as they were um, coming past his, his head as uh, he was driving the truck onto the beach there, and um, how he um, enjoyed actually um, going with the, the rest of the troops as they were um, going through Europe and and essentially uh, rescuing uh, many um uh, countries from the, uh, the groups of the, uh, uh, the, the Germans. 
Well, it sounds like he was really open about it, Ken, because not every veteran of World War II in particular is that open about it. Yeah, um, I, he um, had some good experience. He, he definitely um, shared with me some things that, uh, uh, well, that I was very eager to hear about, uh, about how he uh, slept sometimes in the uh, the, uh, the holes that were made by the um, the trucks um, in order to, to stay safe and um but especially with the people that he, he met. He, he definitely is a man who loves to, to talk to people. And uh, one of my favorite experiences actually as a child was um, going back to Europe with him um, later on and uh, meeting some of the people that he had met when he was there. That's uh, amazing. World War II. It was a very uh, wonderful experience. No kidding. Yeah, it would have been. And obviously your family is very much uh, a military family. You yourself served in Afghanistan, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. I was there in um, 2007, 2008, and 2009. And is that because, do you think, of the history in your family? It did have uh, <clears throat> a big part in my decision to join the military. So tell me, did you, was your grandfather ever frustrated by the kind of the lack of history that acknowledged, uh, you know, the diversity of the Canadian military in wars past? Um, I don't remember my grandfather really complaining about very much, actually, as, as um, I grew up. Um, I didn't really understand, uh, well, not much from him, actually, about um, how there was a, um, a difference in terms of how the um, Japanese Canadians were accepted in the Canadian Forces. Um, my own experience has been nothing but um, positive. Um, never felt like I was any different than any of the other uh, members of the, the military myself. Um, so it was actually not until later, um, probably after my grandfather passed away, that I learned more about um, some of the challenges that uh, I think uh, Japanese Canadians have faced uh, when actually trying to enlist and trying to um, be part of the uh, the Armed Forces. Right. Your great uncle uh, enlisted for World War One as well, didn't he? Yes, that's that's right. Um, my uh, great um, great uncle did um, join the uh, army in uh, World War One. He would have been my uh, my dad's great uncle. Um, and uh, in order to do so, they weren't able to do that. They were in British Columbia, but in order to um, join the military, they had to actually come to Alberta um, in order to enlist. They weren't allowed to enlist all together uh, as they had intended to uh, initially in Vancouver. Wow. So they wanted to serve in the military. They wanted to serve the Canadian Army, and yet they couldn't even do that in BC, but they were very committed, it sounds like, going to Alberta to do it. Yes, uh, it was very important for them. They definitely wanted to um, do their part and show their appreciation for the country that they were living in and to, to to make a difference and also also to they want to do it for their um, children and their children and um, bringing about the, the chance for us to become all full Canadian citizens and, and to earn the right to um, be part of Canada and to be able to vote for uh, people we want to vote for and, and keep that franchise that was very very important for them at the time. Well, Ken, what an amazing family history you have. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you.
That is Kanewasa, Winnipeg doctor, retired major, and also the grandson of a Japanese World War II veteran. Uh, now, Ken's grandfather fought for Canada in World War II. As mentioned, Ken himself served in Afghanistan. He had a great uncle who enlisted in World War I. And all of this, of course, will be recognized as part of the ceremony going on today. Uh, of course, marking the 75th anniversary of uh, World War II, as well as the 70th anniversary of the start of the Korean War, there is uh, a Remembrance Day ceremony going on in Stanley Park today. Uh, it is going to be, it's going to be a good one. It'll be available online as well. Uh, you can, there's a ceremony live stream link on the Nikkei National Museum website that will start at 10.30 this morning if you would like to check that out as well. Now, it's hard to believe now that we didn't always talk about things like post-traumatic stress and the impact that it had on people who served in the military. I don't even think we started using the term PTSD until the 1980s. Today, of course, we do recognize the importance of treating mental health issues, but it can be challenging, especially when it comes to PTSD. A lot of people all need to be treated differently to get them to respond to that. But there are some exciting new things happening in that field. So joining us now is neuroscientist Dr. Ryan Darcy and Captain Trevor Green to talk about groundbreaking research on neuroplasticity. Thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. Good morning, Cindy. Thanks for having us, Cindy. Well, thank you very much for being here. Trevor, let me start with you. You're a retired captain. You were wounded in Afghanistan. What was it like for you to try to get help? Uh, it was kind of tough. But um, there's a lot of mechanisms in place to make it easier for vets, particularly younger guys like me. Um, and I just came back, and I could easily find a peer group that met every two weeks, which really helped. Right. That's that's progress then, if that really helped. Uh, Dr. Darcy, let me talk to you about this as well. What kind of work is being done in this field? What do we know essentially about helping people with PTSD and other brain injuries? Well, I think, I think uh, the advances in our ability to help with uh, PTSD and brain injuries in, in, in general have really increased uh, exponentially, particularly over the last uh, 20 years for sure, and, and it seems to be accelerating. Um, so we now, I think, really have a better understanding, and that's starting to translate into um, innovations in how we can provide uh, service and treatment. Now, I know, Trevor, you underwent a 14-week therapeutic study. They used a portable neuromodulation stimulator to help you out with that. What was it like? Uh, that was really groundbreaking, Sydney. The pods is basically... Uh, Ryan can get into the technical details, but it's really easy to use. It's uh, it's like a a tab that you put on your tongue, and it uh, feels like a mild electric stimulation on your tongue. Hmm. And I just put it on. And do something challenging for 20 minutes. And uh, it's amazing. The results were amazing. Really? So then, Dr. Darcy, what, what, what was happening there then? Uh, Trevor described it quite simply, but from your perspective, what was going on? 
Yeah, so it's really interesting because we've often thought that the way we could provide care for our brains is is uh, through a new drug or, or if things are really extreme, a surgery. And what Trevor just described is completely um, uh, opening up and game-changing the way we can provide treatment because it's basically stimulating your tongue, accessing a hidden pathway into your brain uh, through the nerves that come from your, your tongue uh, into the center and the core of your brain systems. And I like to describe it um, often, of course, we know if our, our computer or our phone starts to glitch, we just turn the power off and turn the power on. Yeah. And this stimulation really seems to uh, non-scientifically allow us to cycle the power on our brain to reestablish um, its uh, systems uh, so that it can start to take these treatments and intensive um, uh, therapies uh, much more. And, and that's primarily through this scientific concept that we call neuroplasticity, which really is just um, simply put a, a way of rewiring new circuits in your brain. So if you've lost abilities or if you want to, uh, in PTSD, you can imagine a very frightening event could wire a circuit. And this helps you to actually uh, rewire and overcome uh, that that uh, that long-term consequence of PTSD. Well, that's amazing. Then, so if you could use the example of Trevor, what kind of kind of before and after difference did you notice? Oh, unbelievable, unbelievable! I think what's so remarkable about Trevor's example and uh, his inspiration is. Um, Trevor is now well over 14 years since he was attacked in Afghanistan uh, with a 16-year-old who drove an axe into the top of his head. And most people, I think, have heard that story. But what's remarkable is he has continued to push and break down the barriers of recovery and regain abilities uh, over 14 years out. And we did actually hit um, a bit of a plateau in recovering his, his physical and his cognitive and his, and his uh, PTSD uh, progress. Mm-hmm. And we worked really hard with conventional me- methods for a year. And we really didn't see changes. And, and these changes we measured not only in terms of his brain, how his brain changed um, using neuroimaging and this neurocatch device, but we also looked at his outcomes, like where's he getting improvements in everyday life? And um, within 14 weeks, when we did this pawn stimulation, uh, the results started taking uh, immediately. And I'll never forget, um, one of our tests was a simple uh, 20-minute stand test. So Trevor standing independently for 20 minutes. And throughout the year, maybe, Trev, maybe you would be doing two, three minutes. Mm -hmm. And then we started with this pawn treatment, and right away, he basically crushed it. Within weeks, he was he was uh, standing for twenty minutes, what? and I, I, watching that was just such a privilege. Wow! And have do those results last? Then are those kind of permanent changes that you can make? Yeah, it's really great. I, I just was over visiting with Trevor and Debbie, and um, he's uh, I couldn't believe the progress. Um, now he's using pawns every day um, and and training like an elite athlete in rehabilitation. Uh, but he's now uh, just, he, we've got him on a modified rowing machine. He can tell you all about, he's basically doing push-ups. What? Um, and when I asked about his PTSD, um, he was, uh, both of them uh, were like, yeah, yeah, it's really continued to stay much, much improved. Trevor, this sounds amazing. You must feel like a whole new person. I do, Timmy. It's fabulous. And we weren't expecting the benefits to my PTSD symptoms, but it's, it's really been modulated since I started using the pawns. Well, I'm not, uh, my triggers are scorched dust and the smell of diesel. And, um, 
I hadn't been reacting as viscerally as I did. And I would just collapse when I heard that, when I smelled those things. Mm -hmm. And loud noises behind me would end me. And I'm, I'm better with those things. They happen sometimes. But I'm better with them. I can handle them better since I got the pawns. I am so glad to hear that. Like, we love having the good news stories. And listen, thanks to both of you for joining us this morning to talk about it. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. That's a great story. And I should mention that Trevor Green, who retired Captain Wooden in Afghanistan, uh, he his story, amazing as it is, inspired... Um, you've probably seen this, the Legion Veterans Village that was going to be opening in Surrey in 2022. But his recovery is one of the reasons why, big reason why that is actually happening. But we love hearing the good news story. And certainly, um, you know, we'd love to hear more about the advances in treating PTSD and brain injuries as well. There's a very good reason why Remembrance Day ceremonies today will not look like those of years past. It's because of COVID-19, of course. And the fact that it does seem to be going up, up, and up, those number of cases right across the country. BC, no exception to that, right? Huge number of cases, 525 yesterday. Alberta had more than 700 yesterday. Ontario this morning announcing once again a record number of cases for them, One more than 1,400 cases, a daily case count there. So lots of measures are being taken to combat this. Let's also take a look at what's happening in Manitoba this morning. For a very long time, it seemed like, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, the Atlantic provinces, they had this thing done. They had this thing crushed. That is not the case now with Manitoba becoming the most recent province to introduce new COVID-19 protocols. Let's find out what those are all about. Joining us now is Gabrielle Marchand, who's a Global News Winnipeg anchor. Gabrielle, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what does the trend for new cases of COVID-19 look like in Manitoba right now? Yeah, well, Simi, Manitoba saw its first sharp spike on October 30th when public health announced 480 new cases. And since then, our province has really seen a steady and frankly dramatic increase. Most days reporting well over 250 cases. Just yesterday, public health said it identified 384 new cases, announced five more deaths in our province. And just some context here. At one point in July, you mentioned Manitoba was doing pretty well. We had just one active COVID-19 case at one point in July. Now, as of yesterday's briefing, we have nearly 5,400 active cases, uh, over 8,800 in total since the start of the pandemic. 270 people are in hospital right now, 30 are in intensive care. And this is for a province with a population of about 1.37 million people. Wow. Okay. So what did what happened here? What was this the result of? Well, I think experts are attributing it to at least Manitoba's top doctor. Dr. Brent Rooston has said repeatedly, we've lost our way. Manitobans forgot about the fundamentals. They did implement, implement mandatory masks. Uh, some changes came into effect in Winnipeg as we really started to see cases spike in the Winnipeg metro region. But they've said repeatedly people need to reduce their close contacts. Public Health was saying at times when they were doing contact tracing, they were having people who had 50 close contacts or more. So when that happens repeatedly, they said that this widespread community transmission is 
inevitable. And at this point now, they're having to essentially shut down the province again for a second time. Right, because it sounds like something that your Premier Brian Pallister was kind of very reluctant and unwilling to do for a long time, and now all of a sudden it's going to be happening. Well, we did see some restrictions come into effect in Winnipeg because that was the region that at that point was seeing kind of the highest number of cases. And I mean, continues to see the highest number of cases with the largest part of this population. But um, it kind of went into its own level red restrictions at the beginning of November. That included uh, mandatory masks in public everywhere. Uh, Bars had to shut down. Restaurants had to shut down. But now we're seeing really rise in cases in all of our health regions. So uh, Manitoba's top doctor and now the premier, Brian Pallister, saying something needs to be done and those restrictions going even further starting tomorrow province-wide. Okay, and what are those restrictions? What's going to happen? So social gatherings are not being allowed. Basically, you can have household contacts only. The province has clarified that restriction doesn't apply to people who are caring for elderly parents, of course, people with joint custody agreements caring for their kids. But other than that, you're only to socialize with people in your household. Uh, Travel to and from northern Manitoba is restricted. This is something we saw in the past. We call it the 53rd parallel. People were not allowed to go beyond the 53rd parallel, except for certain, I guess, special circumstances, we'll call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, in in hopes of keeping cases out of northern Manitoba. All non-essential travel is discouraged. Um, So retail businesses that are listed as critical can stay open. That's grocery stores, uh, gas stations, pharmacies, but at only 25% capacity. And then non-critical retail businesses have to close. So this is something that's new because even before when Winnipeg was under its own level red, uh, shops are allowed to be open, our malls are still open, um, hairdressers are open, gyms, fitness centers, aesthetic services are open. All those places now have to shut down completely. Um, Retail businesses are allowed to operate online or using delivery or curbside pickup. Same thing goes for restaurants, but they're shutting their doors not allowing customers in. And then uh, religious and cultural gatherings can operate virtually only. So huge changes to so many different aspects of life for many folks. Oh, wow, it sure is. All right, Gabrielle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Gabrielle Marchand, Global News Winnipeg anchor. They starting tomorrow, uh, the entire province of Manitoba undergoing this red alert level. Uh, only social contacts from your household, no social gatherings, re- all retail businesses other than critical services must be closed or they can offer p- curbside pickup or delivery. All personal service businesses closed, religious and cultural gatherings online only. Uh, it is a very long list of restrictions. Is that something that we should be thinking about too? We'll see how it goes in Manitoba.